Bibles now with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And yes, we actually are going to look at the text this morning. In fact, let's read it together. Follow along with me. Therefore, this is verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have been enlightened and who have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and have put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking to you in this way. If you were here last week or listened to last week's message, you know that we spent our entire time together kind of laying out the context, laying the foundation for what the author is about to say to us here in chapter 6, mainly in verses 1 through 8. And I will not be relaying that foundation again this morning, but will simply remind you that I believe the evidence leads us to only one possible conclusion about the spiritual identity of the recipients of this letter, this document. Namely, that they are members of a small Jewish church who have offered credible professions of faith, but who have begun to show evidence that their conversion is false. They have begun to show evidence that through their conversation and their behavior, that their trust in Christ is not genuine, that they have not genuinely been born again. They were moving in a direction away from loyalty to Christ. They had at one time left the old system and had come to Christ. Now they were moving back away from Christ and back toward the old system. They were headed toward apostasy from the gospel. The strong warning that the author is laying out here, I believe, is not hypothetical, as some profess, It is not some kind of sin that he's speaking of that cannot be committed, which is how the argument goes. These are genuine believers who, of course, they cannot lose their salvation. But if they could, it would be really bad. I I just don't buy that. that. It doesn't have any substance to it in terms of a real warning for us. Nor is it suggested that true believers can lose their salvation. He would have to go against all of the rest of the New Testament, major portions of the rest of the New Testament, to conclude that. Rather, his concern is that their regression back into spiritual immaturity may be a sign of an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And that's an exact quote out of chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, lest any of you 
have an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. I said last week that it's as if this little church is like a small platoon of soldiers who have found themselves in the confusion of a very severe firefight, a battle. They had shown such excitement about joining the army in the beginning. They were so impressed with their new king. They just wanted to be on his side. But now things were getting tough. The battle had ensued. Bullets were flying, or in their case, arrows, I suppose. They had enlisted with such enthusiasm, but now here in the middle of the battle, they were scared to death. They just wanted the fighting to stop. They just wanted to get out of range of the enemy. They wanted to be safe. They wanted the persecution and the suffering to be over. They could hear the enemy soldiers talking to them from just a few yards away saying, You don't need to fight. You can surrender. Come over to our side. We have plenty of food. We have wine. We have beds to sleep in. We have songs to sing. Besides that, you're vastly outnumbered. Don't you realize millions of people can't be wrong? Besides that, your king asks too much of you. And besides that, he's not really a king anyway. He has usurped the throne and he is a fraud. Come, come to us and be safe and all will be well. And lay down your arms and join us. Defect. And come to the other side, which was really tantamount to coming back home. On the other side of their little foxhole, however, comes another voice. It's the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking through the author of this book. And his words were a strong warning against defecting to the other side. I see three points to his message in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And then a word of encouragement in verse 9. And the three points, well, point one, I think, in his message might be stated like this. Enlistment is no proof of loyalty. Enlistment is no proof of loyalty. Just because you signed on, just because you were excited one day about joining the team of the risen Christ does not mean that you belong to him. The author of the book was witnessing a prolonged immaturity on the part of these Jewish church members that concerned him. As we saw last week, the fundamental principle is this. Where there is life, there is what? Growth. Let's say it together. Where there is life, there is growth. Or we might say where there is church life, there is response to the pastor. Okay. Let's say it together again. Where there is life, there is there is growth. That's such an important principle because when you're dealing with someone who is showing no evidence of spiritual life and yet they profess to be alive, remember this. Where there is life, there is growth. If these people are alive in Christ, they ought to be growing in their knowledge and obedience to Christ. But just the opposite was happening. They were beginning to turn back to the shadows, to the forms of the Old Testament. And by the way, throughout here, and I've mentioned this before, in Colossians, the book of Colossians is what I'm referring to when I talk about the shadows versus the substance, because that was Paul's argument 
to uh, the saints in Colossae who were facing similar trials. The Judaizers had come and they were calling these Jewish believers back into Judaism. And Paul was arguing that they shouldn't listen to them because those things are just shadows. Rather, the substance is to be found in Christ. So don't turn away from the substance and go back to the shadows. I believe that the author of Hebrews is saying the same thing. Apparently, the message they were hearing from the enemy of their souls, from their Jewish old covenant family members and friends and synagogue, former synagogue companions, was that it is possible to have a relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ. It is possible to have a relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ. And this is patently false. They were saying it is perfectly acceptable to worship God according to the old forms and sacrifices and traditions. And Jesus isn't necessary. In fact, Jesus is not the promised Christ at all. He is a fraud. And that's what he's referring to in the first three verses. Look at them with me. We'll read them again. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from the dead, from dead works, of faith toward God, of instruction about washing and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. Now, in order to properly understand this text, we need to make a decision about these six items on the author's list. They are repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instructions about washings, uh, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. We need to make a decision about where these fit into God's scheme of things. We need to ask, is the author speaking about religious practices that were under the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, or is he talking about religious practices that take place in the church as believers? Is this old covenant or is it new covenant? Which side of the cross is the author talking about? Is he saying these things were relevant to people, uh, Old Testament saints before Jesus died? Or is he saying, no, this is, this is for everybody after the resurrection in the church? Some believe that this is a list of common things that new believers in the church would have been taught when they first exited Judaism to come into Christ. In fact, it's a pretty compelling argument. Problem is, I couldn't find any evidence to support it. And what they would say is um, that when a Jew left Judaism and came into the early church, there was a catechism that the church would teach these new Jewish believers as they came in. And they would cover such things as repentance from dead works and faith toward God and instructions about washings and laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment to kind of transition them out of the old covenant and into the church. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. One is I couldn't find any historical support for that. And the second one is it's very difficult to see how Laying on of hands and instructions about washings fits into the new covenant. And so I'm already tipping my hand on this, so let me just say it outright. 
I don't believe he's talking about teachings in the church. These are not the items of a catechism that was given to those who were coming in the church out of Judaism. Rather, he is speaking of the central doctrines of the Old Covenant, central teachings that were relevant to the Old Covenant, teachings that were shadows that pointed to the Christ, but are incomplete without him. Let's look at them one at a time. First of all, repentance from dead works. What's that? Well, repentance from dead works in the Old Covenant was repentance from evil deeds or evil deeds that caused death. The Old Testament saint was to turn away from sin. But this is an incomplete and immature doctrine. It was eventually made complete in Christ. Let me show you Hebrews chapter 9. Just flip the page a little bit. Verses 13 and 14. And this is what the author of Hebrews says. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, cleanse your conscience from what? Dead works to serve the living God. He's saying, yes, there was an Old Testament teaching about repentance from dead works, but it was incomplete. Now, in order to understand that, you need to understand what's called progressive revelation. How many of you have heard about progressive revelation? Let me just try to explain progressive revelation to you. The book of Job was the first book, uh, the inspired book written. It wasn't Genesis, although Genesis is put first, and there's reasons for that that we don't need to go into here. But Job was the first guy to actually pen a book that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. How much about the Lord Jesus Christ, about the coming Messiah, did Job know? Not very much. Job knew that someday he would see his Redeemer face to face with his own eyes. And that's all he knew. And that's a wonderful truth, but it's incomplete. Moses comes along and he gives us Genesis 3.15 where God promises that the seed of Eve will one day come around and crush the serpent's head. Well, that's a little more revelation. Now we know that there's a promised son who will one day conquer sin by conquering the enemy. But we really don't know much more about it. We don't know how it's all going to happen. We don't know when he's going to come or when he's going to be born or what family of the earth is he going to be born into or how is he going to accomplish it. And so we move on through the Old Testament revelation and God reveals more. He shows us through Abraham that there is going to be a son that God will provide. And then through Moses, he offers uh, he sets up this sacrificial system where a lamb is slain as kind of a, a type, a foreshadowing of the, uh, the fulfillment of God's provision to handle their sins, to take away their sins completely. And then we have Isaiah who comes along, the prophet, and he says, he starts pulling all of these pieces together, and he says, for unto us a child is be, will be born. Unto us a son is given. 
And the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And you get to the end of, or toward the end of Isaiah, and you find Isaiah in 53, chapter 53, explaining how the Messiah is going to do that. How this promised son, who was seen by Job, who was prophesied by Moses, uh, or by God in the garden, Moses wrote about it, now we get to Isaiah, and the picture is becoming clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer. And then we read in Micah how the, the promised son would be born in Bethlehem, and the other prophets fill in a lot of gaps. And then suddenly, one day, Jesus is born. The angels announce his coming, and it all fits. This is progressive revelation. It's not that any piece of the puzzle is wrong. It's simply that as God revealed it, piece by piece by piece, it became clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer. And through the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament, the whole message was, he's coming, he's the promised son, he's the deliverer, he's after the order of Melchizedek, you see all these types, he's the Lamb of God, he's coming, he's going to take all of our sin upon himself, he's going to be bruised for our sakes, the chastisement for our peace will be laid upon him, he will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, he will be born in Bethlehem, he will be a Jew, a son of David from the tribe of Judah, and then he is born, and he fulfills all of righteousness. And in the end, he suffers and dies, just as the previous revelation said. And at that point, when he dies and then is risen again, it is finished. It is complete. Now, the completion of God's plan has come. The fullness of God's plan has come. And now, everything's different. Everything's different. Because the forms that once pointed us toward Christ... Or of no more use. That's why in Galatians, Paul argues the same kind of situation. And he argues that the law was meant to be a tutor to do what? To bring us salvation? No. To bring us to Christ. Was the law inspired of God? Perfectly. Was it complete? It was complete in itself, but it was not complete in God's plan of salvation and in God's revelation. There was more to be revealed. But now that Christ has come, the only thing left to do for the apostles was to explain what Christ had done, to explain his fulfillment of all that went before to explain, as Paul said, that he is the substance. Everything else was merely shadow. And so when we talk about repentance from dead works, we're talking about a doctrine of the Old Testament that was an incomplete doctrine. The Old Testament Jews were called to repentance from their sin, but as yet there was no Christ once Christ came, they were called to turn away from their sins by turning to Christ. And that is the New Testament teaching. And what about the second one, faith toward God? Faith toward God is elementary. It's very basic. 
It's basic to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. But here again, it's an immature or incomplete doctrine that would find its fulfillment in Christ. But now that the promise Christ has come, faith toward God is of no use unless it is also faith toward the Son or faith in the Son of God himself. How do we know that? Well, because there is, no, there is salvation in no one else, Acts 4.12 says, right? For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men whereby you must be saved. The Old Testament saint was, put, was to put his trust in God, but the New Testament saint is to put all of his trust in God the Son. God the Son, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what about washings? I think this is the giveaway. In terms of where we put this whole seek or this whole list, where do we put it on the um, the map of Revelation, the canon of Scripture? Is he talking about New Testament or Old Testament? I think this is the giveaway for us. Instructions about washings. This is not a New Testament concept. There were, this was a reference to ceremonial washing or ceremonial cleansings that were all over the Old Covenant. In fact, every Jewish home had a basin, probably more than one basin, so that when someone came into the house, they would engage in various kinds of washings. And you remember remember the Pharisees getting after Jesus about the fact that his disciples wouldn't wash their hands before they eat. Now, how many of you children know that your parents, your mom, forget your dad, your dad doesn't care, your mom (laughs) wants you to wash your hands before you eat, right? Why? Because you don't want to get any germs in your mouth. That was not what the ceremonial washings were about. The ceremonial washings were a religious ceremony that pointed people to their need to be cleansed. And so they came up with these washings. They would actually dip their hands in the bowl and they were to raise their hands like this and let the water drip down their arms and dip their hands in the bowl and let the water roll down their fingertips and they would recite a Hebrew prayer as they did it. It was a ceremonial cleansing. Now, it may have taken germs off too, but that wasn't the point. The point was there had to be a ceremonial cleansing. Every Jewish home had this kind of basin for washing feet, washing hands, washing whatever needed to be washed. Whenever visitors would come for various kinds of events in the home, they would all experience different forms of ceremonial washings. But this is not a New Testament practice. Rather, we have been now permanently washed, permanently cleansed through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 3.5 says that we have We now have an eternal washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. The ceremonial washings of the Old Testament were merely shadows. They were foreshadows of the ultimate cleansing that would be accomplished through the death and resurrection of the Son of God. And what about laying on of hands? Some will say, well, this was the New Testament practice of laying on hands to commission people into ministry. That doesn't fit the context here. He's talking about Old Covenant. His whole argument is to turn away from the Old Covenant, press forward away from those shadows, and move forward into the fulfillment of Christ. And when he talks about laying on of hands, he's talking about the Old Testament covenant, the Old Covenant practice, the Old Testament, Old Covenant, same thing. The Old Covenant practice 
that a person would lay his hands, a man would take a lamb to the altar, the priest would slit its throat, and the man would lay his hand on it, as if to say, this should have been me. And this is what he's doing. He is identifying himself with the death of this lamb. This lamb's blood is being shed. It should have been my blood. I identify myself with him. And God graciously installed that ceremony with real effect that their sins would be covered until the Christ would come and forgive all who believe. But in the New Testament, the only sacrifice we are called to identify with is what? The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are identified with him. When the Holy Spirit baptizes us into union with Christ by faith, now the believer is referred to, according to Ephesians, we are now what? In Christ we are now completely identified with him. So that the Father, when he looks at us, all he sees is Christ. There is some kind of a spiritual, organic unity between us and Christ. So that it says, when we become children of God, we sit with Christ, glorified on the throne of God. Though in time we are not there yet. We are so intimately identified and connected to him. Believers are referred to as in Christ. We are in Him. Other passages talk about Him in us. And He is the head. And we are the body. And He was our once for all sacrifice. And His people are now inextricably identified with Him. The substance has now come. So there's no more need for the shadow of laying on of hands in the sacrifice. And what about the resurrection of the dead? Again, an Old Testament doctrine. And the Old Testament tells us a little bit about the resurrection. Certainly Job believed he would be raised bodily. And he would see with his own eyes his Redeemer. But in the New Testament, we have the fullness of teaching about the resurrection, the promised resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the promised resurrection of all who are in Christ, so that as he is raised, so we also are raised. That's what baptism is all about, right? It's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. It is a visible manifestation of a spiritual reality that's invisible that has taken place in our hearts, namely that when Jesus died, God saw that as our death. And when Jesus rose, God saw that as our resurrection. Why don't we have to die and go to hell? Because we've already done that in Christ. In Christ. The resurrection of the dead is fully explained in in the New Testament. And why would anyone be content to understand resurrection by the limited teaching of the Old Testament when it is so thoroughly explained and exemplified in the New Testament through Jesus Christ? It was time to leave the old covenant behind and cling to the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And one last thing, and that's eternal judgment. Again, the Old Testament tells us very little about the coming judgment, except that one day God will bring every act to judgment, Ecclesiastes 12, 14. In the New Testament, however, we're told a great deal about the coming of judgment. 
progress of revelation is now complete. We have it all. Everything that God intends to tell us about the coming judgment, he has now told us. In the New Testament, we are told a great deal about it. But we are also told this, that for all who are no longer identifying themselves with a bull or a goat or a lamb, but now identify themselves by God's grace with Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. For those who are identified with Christ, there is no condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. The incomplete has been made complete. The shadows have been replaced by the substance. Why would you go back to the shadows? So much more could be said here, but the main point you need to catch is simply that the author was calling these Jewish men and women to see the futility of falling back on the old, immature system of relating to God. He has promised all, all along the way, that the Christ would come and make all things new. And all of those things that they were going back to were simply pointing the other direction, as if they were clinging to do-not-enter signs. Wrong way. They were all pointing this way, and they were all moving that way. And the author was trying to wake them up. Don't follow people that direction. That's the wrong way. The promise was that The Christ would come and make all things new. Christ would come and be the fulfillment of all that went before. But now Christ has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those old teachings were mere shadows, but he is the substance. Cling to him. Draw near to him. Retain your loyalty to him. If you are a true child of God, you will grow and mature in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sad reality, however, was... These professing believers had not only stopped growing, they had turned around and were walking the other direction. Perhaps they hadn't gone very far. But maybe I could put it in these terms. They were actually repenting from their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are repenting for having placed their faith in Christ or were being tempted to do so. And so in chapter 6, verse 1, the author is saying that the Jewish, these Jewish believers, it's time to leave behind the elementary teachings about the Christ. The word leaving here is important. It doesn't mean to despise or abandon the elementary doctrines. The point is that the beginning is not the ending. The starting line is not the finish line until you have made the full run Don't go back to the starting line. Press on. And why would you cling to the elementary old covenant teachings about the Christ when the risen living Christ offers himself completely to you? It makes no sense. Rather than regress from your profession, we must, according to his words, press on to maturity. Press on to maturity. The author is saying it's wonderful that you've enlisted in Christ's army, but enlistment is no proof of loyalty. 
Your loyalty is being tested now. Your loyalty is being tested in the battle, in the temptation. And whether or not you really belong to God is going to be manifest. The first proof of loyalty is growth toward maturity. If you really are true believers, it's time to move beyond the basics of the Old Testament teaching and grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's time to get away from the starting line where nobody can tell whether you're in the race or out of it. Jonathan Edwards When he was a teenager, he wrote for himself 70 resolutions by which he intended to govern his life. Number 28 reads, Resolved to study the Scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. There's a challenge, teenagers. And there's a challenge for us adults, too. Are you growing? Are you actively pursuing an ever-deepening knowledge of Christ and His Word? Do you come to church with pen in hand, ready to record what the Lord has to say to you through His Word? Do you read your Bible so as to grow in Christ Is there discernible evidence in your life that you have grown in some significant ways in the fear of the Lord in this past year? Beware. Prolonged immaturity may be the sign of an evil, unbelieving heart that is turning away from the living God. This is the issue the author is speaking to. But the next thing we need to ask is, what if they don't grow? What if they don't grow in Christ? What if they turn their backs on the gospel completely in favor of the old obsolete system that never could bring about salvation? What then? Well, if that proves to be the case, there will be grave consequences. First of all, the author is saying enlistment is no proof of loyalty. Secondly, he is saying defection will seal your eternity. Defection will seal your eternity. Verses 4 through 6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Well, this indeed is a grave warning. And it's no use trying to soften the blow of his words. It just doesn't work. Many have tried. What he says is exactly what he means. As I have said, he simply cannot be speaking of a person losing his salvation because so many scriptures speak to the permanence and indestructibility of genuine salvation. For example, Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you will what? Be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 38 and 39. What can separate you, beloved, from the love of Christ? Nothing. Not tribulation or distress or persecution or nakedness or peril or sword. Nothing. Not height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Once you are in, you're in. The question is not, 
Are we once saved, always saved? The reality is, if you're saved, you're always saved. The author is simply raising the question, are you? Are you really? The reality is being put to the test. But if you belong to God, you will finish well. You will finish well because he will hold you. Romans 8, 29 through 30. All whom he foreknew and predestined and called and justified, he also what? Glorified. Glorified. As if it were past tense. He's already done it. And how many of those who he foreknew and predestined and called and justified will be glorified? All. All. First Peter 1.4 says we are kept by what? The power of the flesh? No. By the power of God. Ephesians 4.30, we are sealed by the Spirit until the day of redemption. John 10, 27 and 28, which I think if there's any ambiguity anywhere else in Scripture, it's... It's smashed to bits by this verse. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And the Father who has given them to me, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. This is the perseverance of the saints, beloved. The God who has the power to save sinners also has the power and the will to keep them to the end. So when he says in chapter 3, verse 14 of Hebrews, that we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, he is not speaking of the believer's willpower, but the power of God to keep those whom he has saved. And by the power of The grace of God, your loyalty to Christ, will persevere if you belong to him. And so if the author is not speaking about the loss of salvation, what is he referring to? Well, our time is short, but let me simply say that the other key to interpreting this text is to remember that these people are Jewish. If you don't understand that, this won't make any sense to you. These were Jewish people with a history that spanned thousands and thousands of years of faithfulness and unfaithfulness, of blessing and curse. In God's eyes, these were the most spiritually privileged people on the planet. They were given everything. In fact, everything that we have as Gentiles was first given to them. All of the blessings of the new covenant came through them to us. They were the special recipients of his love and grace. They were the ones whom God delivered by the ten miraculous and devastating plagues. They were the ones he rescued from Egypt. They saw the Red Sea open and the Egyptian army destroyed. They saw his glory on the mountain and heard the voice of God come from the fire. They were the recipients of the Ten Commandments and the law of God. They were led through the wilderness by his unique presence and the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. They were the ones exclusively who received the manna and the water from the rock. They alone had God's prophets and the promises of his coming Christ, and it was to them that God indeed sent 
his one and only Son. And not only that, but after the death and resurrection of Christ, the gospel of salvation by grace through, grace through faith was for the Jew, what? First. And after that, to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. Everywhere Paul went, he went to the synagogue first, the synagogue first, the synagogue first. Why? Because the gospel was for the Jew first. They were given first right of refusal, and they did refuse. No people on earth had the spiritual privilege they had. Nowhere in this passage, let me point out, nowhere in this passage are the usual terms of salvation used. He isn't speaking about justification or sanctification or new birth or regeneration. You don't find any of those terms here. And so what do we find? We find terms like this, enlightenment. If they had first been enlightened, which is simply an intellectual perception an unbeliever can have when the word of God reveals his sinful state. When you go to some revival and the word is proclaimed, and you see your sin, you're enlightened, doesn't mean you're saved. It means the Holy Spirit may have done something there. He may have awakened you to your need. You see things that you haven't seen before. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're saved. Read any of the writings of those who led the two great awakenings. And they'll tell you when they went back, it was shocking how few how few of those who had made professions of faith and had such an experience by what they thought was the Holy Spirit and maybe was, yet proved not to persevere and were more sinful now than they were before. They had been enlightened. They had tasted the heavenly gift. Notice, tasted. They didn't eat it. They didn't consume it. They didn't drink it. They only tasted it. And they were partakers of the Holy Spirit. In what sense? In the sense that they were associated with him and had greatly benefited from his ministry. I mean, just think about all of the Old Testament, how the Holy Spirit blessed Israel and blessed Israel and blessed Israel. The manna, the quail, the water, the coming through the Red Sea, the, the angel of death, as Cecil B. DeVille called him, you know, came down on the day of Passover. All of that was by the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but now that Christ has come, now that Christ has come, these people had seen. These people had seen what the Spirit of God did. The day of Pentecost, they had heard about that. Some of them may have been there. They had seen how the Spirit had moved in the midst of the apostles, and they had benefited from it. Not only that, but they were in the church now. And all the benefits that God was pouring out on the church, they were experiencing from. It reminds me of in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul is talking about a believing wife and an unbelieving husband, and he says, how then are the children, how then are the children sanctified? He's not talking about sanctified as unto salvation, but sanctified unto blessing. Because there is a believer in the home, even if it's only one, God is pouring out His grace on her. And the husband and the children benefit. They had tasted the heavenly gift. They had tasted the heavenly gift. They had heard the gospel and had even benefited from it. And they were partakers of the Holy Spirit. 
Again, they had tasted the good word of God. Of course they did. Their very culture was inundated with the word of God. And since they had made a profession of faith, they were completely immersed in the word of God in the church. Again, they had tasted the powers of the age to come. In other words, they saw with their own eyes the prophetic miracles and signs of the first century church that affirmed the authenticity of the gospel. Talk about privilege. Talk about responsibility. If you deliberately turn your back on all of that, the author is saying there is no hope for you. If you turn your back on all that God has given you and all the things by which you have been blessed, there's nothing else to give. God doesn't have anything else to give than what he's given. If you turn your back on that, there is no hope for you. How do you, how do you intend to recommend yourself to God if you reject all that he's given? He gave you everything. You rejected it. How can you hope to be reconciled to God now? The sobering reality is that once you have all the information and all the privilege, once you have tasted the good and eternal realities of saving grace in Christ, if you consciously turn your back and openly reject that, you have in effect joined yourself with the company of those who led Jesus to the cross. And you put him to open shame all over again. You are, in effect, saying the Pharisees and the scribes who openly mocked Jesus and had him led to the cross and murdered, you're one of them. You have become one of them because they had all of the word of God. They had all of the signs of the Old Testament, all of the shadows. They should have known he was the Christ. All of the evidence was there, and yet they turned their back. There is no hope. And I support this even through the context. Back in chapter 4 when he talks about Israel. They had been blessed again and again and again by God. Even to Mount Sinai. The law. The manna. Everything. And they came up to the promised land. Had they tasted? Had they experienced blessing? Is there anything that God had not given them? And now brought them up to the promised land? And they wouldn't cross the border. They wouldn't go in and take it. And God is saying, you are going to be just like that. And there is no hope beyond that. You might be asking, is it really possible for a person to be enlightened and taste the heavenly gift and become partakers of the Holy Spirit in some sense and taste the word of God and the powers of the age to come and still be lost? I think this is exactly what Jesus is referring to in in Matthew 13, in the parable of the soils, you remember that, the four soils? Jesus is talking about people who don't come, don't prove themselves to be born again, and those who do. Four soils. There were four soils that the seed of the gospel fell upon. The first soil repelled the gospel like a stone. Obvious unbeliever. Obvious unbeliever. The last soil bore fruit. And his point was, out of the four, one bore fruit, showing himself to be a true disciple. But the two soils in between, Jesus said, received the gospel gladly, and they sprang up quickly. To know such a person, you would say, there's a child of God. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've benefited from the good word. They've benefited from the Holy Spirit. They have had some interaction with all of this and have been blessed by it. And then they fall away. 
Jesus says they sprang up quickly, but when affliction and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it out. And it does nothing. Yes, it is possible to taste, to experience blessing from, and yet be lost. Or to put it back in the context of, your, of our young soldiers in the foxholes, if you defect to the enemy, your de- eternity will be sealed. You see, the enlistment is no proof of your loyalty, and defection will seal your eternity. And finally, the results are the true test of quality. Results are the true test of quality. Just briefly here, verse 7, For ground that drinks in rain, which often falls on it. By the way, if whatever your interpretation of this text is, if this illustration doesn't make any sense, to what you understand the rest of the text to mean, then your interpretation is probably wrong. For the ground that drinks in the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful for those whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. You see, beloved... Where there is life, there is what? Growth. And where there is growth, there will be fruit. Jesus said in Matthew 3, Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our fathers. For I say to you that from these very stones, God is able to raise up children of Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the what? Fire. Do we need any explanation on what fire is an allusion to? Certain judgment? Again, in Matthew 7, Jesus says, So every good tree bears good fruit. But the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. And then he says this, same context, next sentence. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? You think they tasted of the heavenly gift? You think they partook of the good word of God? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Could it be any clearer, beloved? Could it be any clearer? The issue that the author of Hebrews is addressing is a very real concern. Jesus said, many who call him Lord will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Just as many who said they were children of Abraham did not enter the promised land, but died in the desert. The ones who bear fruit are the ones who persevere 
who press on, who draw near, who hold fast. Those are all terms in Hebrews. And no matter how fierce the battle, they will not surrender. They will maintain their loyalty to their king. They will finish well. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. And what happens to those who defect? The sobering reality, beloved, is that they must face the fury of their king in a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a sobering warning indeed. But the author goes on, verse 9. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, that is fruit, though we are talking to you in this way. Here's a pastor. Here's a man of God who loves God's sheep. And he's saying, the jury hasn't come back on this yet. I'm not saying that it's carved in stone that you're an unbeliever and you have gone apostate. I'm just telling you what I see. And the direction of your life is scaring me. But I'm not out and out telling you you're unsaved. I wouldn't do that. That's between you and God. But beware. Because if you continue the direction you're going, if you continue in your prolonged immaturity, there is only one conclusion about your soul. You are lost. Even if you were a worker of miracles, even if you were a speaker of prophecy, even if you were loved by the church and God's people, you are lost. It's not too late, he's saying. You haven't gone too far. You may be tempted, but don't give in to the enemy's tactics. Stand firm, be loyal, and experience the blessings of a gracious God. I think he could summarize the whole thing with these words. To whom much is given, much will be required. Oh, how much you and I have been given. We are so privileged. We have the Word of God in every conceivable form. But are we obeying it? And are we growing in it? And is our love for the Lord Jesus Christ growing because of it? Are we different now than we were a year ago? I'm confident that many of you, most of you, I hope all of you are. For the glory of God and for your own eternal joy. Let's pray.